Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We'll get started in just a moment. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing so that you may stay up to date with the latest podcast. And if our podcast brings value to your life, please consider sharing it with family and friends. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. Hey, thanks so much. Good morning. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you. Thank Pastor John. I'm always honored and humbled when a pastor lets me stand in their pulpit. I warn you in advance, they usually invite me once and I rarely get invited back. But anyway, glad to be here the first time. And it's always good to feel the presence of the Lord. Amen. To be in a place, no matter where I travel, no matter where I hang out, when I can walk in and sense the presence of God, then we know we are in the right place. So i got a couple things to share with you this morning. I'm going to share you a little context from John chapter 4, a story most of you know. I'm going to share a little bit of my story, then I'm going to invite you to a response to what it is we have to say today. So I always like to know a little bit about the people that are talking to me. I grew up in the mountains of Virginia. My dad was a pastor my whole life. And my dad was, grew up in the mountains of West Virginia, got saved when he got out of the military. He was 21 years old and had grown up in an alcoholic's home, uh, alcoholic grandfather's home. And, and so he went to church, a little Conklin Town Church of God, Conklin Town, West Virginia, accepted the Lord, filled with the Spirit, called to preach. And uh, that was 80-some years ago. And at that point in time, everything was rules and regulations and legalism. So everything was a sin, basically. And uh, so I grew up, and Dad sort of practiced that in his preaching to us. So I remember I was 13. My brother Jeff was 12. I looked at him. I said, we're going to hell. and ain't nothing we can do about it, brother. <laughs> so uh, we might as well enjoy the journey. So uh, lived like that for a while. Finally came to understand grace, accepted the Lord, went off to college, got my degree in ministry, and went into traditional ministry for 14 years. So first 14 years of ministry, I was a youth pastor and associate pastor. Had a great time. We now run City Refuge, started that 25 years ago. I'll talk about that a bit later. I looked back recently, reflected on 25 years downtown at City of Refuge, and began to understand that we had done something unintentionally that happened to be scripturally, and I always like when I'm somewhere down the road and I can look back and realize I was following the leading of the Spirit without even realizing it. And I realized that when I was reading John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well, and you know the story, we won't spend a ton of time on it, but in John chapter 4, at the beginning of the passage of Scripture, it says that Jesus realized that his disciples and John the Baptist's disciples were comparing numbers as to who was baptizing the most people. So church competition started 2,000 years ago, right? They're, they're comparing notes who baptized the most, and Jesus didn't want to be a part of that conversation. So he pulled his disciples, and he said, let's take a journey. They go over to Sychar, and they go to Samaria. And so when they get there to Samaria, Jesus sends the disciples away, right? He sends them to town to get food, and he's sitting at this well, and he has this conversation with the woman at the well when she shows up. It's interesting to me that the longest one-on-one recorded conversation in the New Testament between Jesus and anybody else is this conversation. So Jesus' longest one-on-one conversation is with the woman at the well who's been married five times, living with somebody else now. It's not with the Pharisees. It's not with the Sadducees. It's not with the religious leaders. It's not with his disciples. His longest one-on-one conversation is with a woman that he's not supposed to be talking to because he's a man in that day and age. She's a Samaritan. He's not supposed to be talking to her because he is Jewish. Samaritans are looked down on, and she has ill reputation. And yet that's who Jesus chooses to hang out with. 
And I see four things in this story that when I look back, I realize are what we do. Number one, I see that in this story, Jesus was intentional. So he shows up at the well and he sends the guys away and he's sitting there at noon. He is intentional about his timing and his location because he knows she's going to show up at noon because all the rest of the women of the land show up in the morning and she doesn't want to be there when anybody else is there. See, everybody else comes in the morning to draw water to cook with and to clean with for the day. The Samaritan woman shows up at noon because she is the outsider. She is the adulteress in their mind. She is the one who's done all of these wrong things in their mind. She doesn't want to be in the conversation. Jesus shows up at that time, right, because he knows she's going to show up. Jesus is intentional in the fact that he sends his disciples away because he doesn't want her to be afraid when she shows up and there are 12 or 13 men set around. He is by himself, so it's less intimidating to her. Jesus is very intentional. You know, I'm, I'm afraid along the way, as sons and daughters of Yahweh, if we're not careful, we will start to practice what I call accidental ministry versus intentional ministry. So accidental ministry means I get up tomorrow morning, I go about my day's activity, and I happen to bump into somebody who has a need, and I respond in the moment, but I didn't have any plan about that when I arose. I think as true sons and daughters of God, we should rise each morning and have a plan about how we're going to express the kingdom of God that day. There should be some intentionality about who we're going to love on and who we're going to care about and who we're going to talk to and how we're going to share. If we rise intentionally, our eyes will be open and God will reveal to us things along the way that we otherwise would not have seen. So we need to be very intentional. The second thing that I see in this passage is Jesus is very practical, right? He's very practical. The woman shows up and Jesus looks at her and he says to her, would you give me a drink of water? Jesus doesn't present himself as the answer the first time he shows up in somebody's life. He doesn't walk in going, you better listen to what I have to say. I got all the answers for you. I got the solutions to your problem. What you're doing is wrong. Where you've been is wrong. He shows up very practical and asks for something from her. How do you think the world would feel if as sons and daughters of God, we showed up and asked them for their opinion? What if we showed up and asked them what they're thinking, what they have to contribute, what they have to give, right? Well, we show up acting like we are the Messiah himself. When the fact of the matter is we have our own flaws. Jesus showed up in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the day, without a water bucket or a rope, and he was thirsty. So he asked somebody who didn't look like him, sound like him, or act like him for something that would make him feel better. He was practical. It's scary to me sometimes that that we become impractical in the world in which we live as believers. We don't want to associate with those who aren't like us. We don't want to talk to those who have differences of opinion than we do. We we don't want to familiarize ourselves with the environments in which we might be uncomfortable. We want to open our door and invite those that aren't like us to come to our house where nobody's like them, but we don't want to go to their open door and sit down with them. We just need to be practical sometimes. You know, it hit me one time. My, my daughters, I have five daughters, Cassie, Kelsey, Kenzie, Kaylin, Carly. And uh, that's why I look like this. But anyway, um, 
have five daughters and four of my daughters are runners. One of them's like, you must be kidding me. But four of my daughters are runners, ran cross country and track in high school, great runners. So I run with them. Well, I run behind them now. But anyway, we've been running together for years and I've been running a Peachtree Road Race about 23, 24 years now. So it's on the 4th of July and it's, you know, 55,000 runners and it's 75, 80 degrees when we start and it's 6.2 miles and it's stupid, but I do it every year with my girls. Right, so we run that. We run a bunch of other races throughout the year. And so it's, it's every year I've run the race. Every year for 22, 23 years, the same thing happens. We leave the start line. We go about a mile down the course, and there's a public grocery store on the right, and there's a Moe's restaurant on the left. And there's these two guys that set up outside this Moe's restaurant. They got a big box that one of them stands on. They got a, 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 a microphone and a, amplif- and a speaker, and they're preaching. And, one, and they both have on suits and ties, and one of them's up on the box, and he's got a Bible, and he is preaching. And the other one is holding a sign that says, Repent or burn forever in hell. All right, and every year for 22, 23 years, I run down the road and they're preaching at me and they're telling me I'm going to hell and I'm like, why do I have to go to hell for running down the street? I don't understand, right? And they're preaching and they're yelling and in 22, 23 years, I've never seen one person stop running, turn left and go over and talk to them. I just never have. It's just not practical. I'm like, how about you give me a bottle of water, bub, and then we might talk about going to heaven or hell. I tell you what, if you want to run behind me with a fan, that'd be a great idea. That's practical. And I'll even give you my number and you can run a mile if you want to, fathead. Listen, it's just sometimes we are so impractical about the expression of Jesus Christ. I was running a half marathon in Denver, Denver several years ago, raising money for a missions organization. And, and I, I planned sort of well, but not really. So I could run the 13.1 miles. That wasn't the issue. The issue was I didn't train for the lack of oxygen in the mountains of Denver, Colorado. So I flew in on Friday night. This is how much acclimation I have. I fly in on Friday night. On Saturday morning at 6 o'clock, I'm on a bus going to the start line. At 7 o'clock, the gun goes off, and I start running in an elevation without oxygen that I've never run in before. And about four miles into my 13.1 miles, I realized I was going to die, right? It wasn't a matter of if, it was just a matter of when, right? So I started planning how I would die during the run. Because what I want to do, I said, now when you feel yourself dying, go down, land on your knee, roll on your shoulder, and land on your back because you don't want to mess your face up for the viewing they're going to have, right? So I'm running. I finally I get to about 10 miles. I'm dehydrated. I've stopped sweating. My hands and feet have swollen. My nose is bleeding, but I won't stop because I'm a man, right? And we don't have good sense. And so at this 10-mile mark, there's this table with water, and there's this sweet lady. She's probably 75 years old, and she's cheering for everybody. She's got water, and they got Christian music playing. And as I run by, I grab a cup of water, and she looks at me, and she goes, Jesus is with you. And I looked at her and I said, you think he wants to run a while? <laughs> Nothing practical. I went back, back to the hotel, got a shower, got on a plane that afternoon flying back to Atlanta. This has nothing to do with the sermon. But I'm flying back from Denver to Atlanta and I had a body cramp start right here and go to my little toe. I was literally laid out in the center out of the airplane. Ha! Right? Didn't plan well. And there were people praying for me on the plane. I'm like, does anybody have anything that will stop cramps? Right? Sometimes we just say, Jesus is just practical. Do you have a drink of water? 
Just be real. The people around us don't care what we have to say until they see how we choose to live. And Jesus embraces and wraps his arms around everybody. And that's what we should be doing. We should be practical in our expression of who he is. So he's intentional. He's relational. I mean, he's practical. And third, he's relational. So in his conversation, they get a little bit of the conversation. And Jesus asks the question. Or he says to her, go get your husband. He starts talking about her family. He already knows, but he wants her to talk about it. He says, go get your husband. And she goes, well, I don't don't have a husband. He goes, I know you've been married five times. The man you're living with now is not your husband. Right? Jesus intentional, practical, which leads to the opportunity to be relational. And in relationship, he starts talking to her about the brokenness of her life about the places of struggle and difficulty and places of hardship and places of valley experiences and places of desperation. And he begins to have this conversation and to dive in to the fractured aspects of her life. But it's because he was intentional and he showed up and it was because he was practical with with water and it's then he has a right to be relational, which leads to... The opportunity in verse number 26 of John chapter 4, in verse 25, she says, in the days that are to coming, all of my people that have told me about that the Messiah is coming, and Jesus looks at her in verse 26, and he goes, I am he. I am the Messiah. His intentional, practical, relational approach gave him the opportunity to open an eternal conversation. Right? Too often, those of us who call ourselves Christians and followers of Christ open with the eternal conversation. Listen, I don't need to ask you if, I, if you know the name of Jesus until I know your name. Right? I don't need to lead with eternity until I know where you are today. Before we start talking about a thousand years from now, let's figure out if you're hungry or if you need somewhere to sleep or if you need a jacket to wear or if your children need some school supplies or if you need some money to get to work or maybe you need a job at all. Let's start talking about where your life is before we start talking about where your eternity can be. So I started realizing this is how we lived our lives for the past 25 years, and I didn't know it. So 25 years ago, I was on staff of a church north of Atlanta. I'd been there five years. Life was great. Ryan and I had four girls. They were seven, five, three, and one. And we were going to church. I was preaching, speaking, traveling around the country, leading mission trips over the, all over the world. It was fun. But I get into the car after church sometimes, and I look at Rhonda, and I go, is this it? And she goes, what do you mean? I go, is this all there is? It's good. People are coming to know Jesus, being discipled. We're having success. But there's something inside of me that says for us, there's something more. And I just want God to tell me if there's not any more, then I'll settle in and be good. But if there is more, I want the more. And then all of a sudden the bishop called and he said, hey, we got this little church downtown. It's been around for a long time. And, and, and they, the pastor's been gone six months and nobody wants to go be the pastor. And they just got a few people left and the building's falling apart and they don't have any money. Would you go down for six months and oversee the closing of the church and sell the property? And Ron and I talked, and my pastor, and we said, well, this is a good idea. Yeah, you know, I preach every Sunday, get used to that. I, I take care of some business things, develop more business acumen. We'll, we'll help these people find somewhere to go to church, and then I'll come back to our regular life. So I went down to do that, and five or six Sundays in, into that six-month assignment, this young lady walked in, stood out in the crowd, looked a little rough. At the end of the service, she walked down the aisle. She was weeping, and she took me by the hands, and these were her words. She looked at me, and she goes, I've been hooking and stripping 14 years. Can you help me get out of the life? 
And I said, well, I think we can. And we prayed with her that morning. She accepted Jesus. It was just the coolest thing. And I said, well, this is cool. While we're closing and getting ready to sell, people are still finding Jesus. That's cool. The next week she came back and she sat right here on the second row and she brought Bill with her. Bill was a 52-year alcoholic, hadn't been in church in 30 years, he said, and was one of her paying customers. And during the week she said to Bill, I found something I think you need. Come go to church with me. And he did. And we started singing that little chorus, I need you more and more than yesterday, more than words can say. Five minutes into service, Bill falls out in the center aisle and starts wailing out loud and he won't stop. So finally, I slow the music down. I go down, I go, can I help you? And he goes, well, I think I need Jesus. And I said, well, we usually do that at the end of service. (laughs) We see we need to sing and I need to preach and then we need to invite you to Jesus. And Bill goes, I want him now. I don't like fine. So we led Bill to Jesus that morning. And the next morning we show up and there are four more drug addicts and alcoholics and homeless people have invited each other to church. And the next Sunday, there are 10 more. And the next Sunday, there are 20 more. And I walk in four months to, in my six-month assignment, and there are 100 drug addicts, alcoholics, homeless people, people running from the law, people that just got out of jail sitting in this little church going, can you help us? And I look at Rhonda, and I drew on my deep theological seminary training. I said, we've been conned by God, woman. This is not right. Everybody knew the church in Virginia. I was going to go back and pastor. It's up in the mountains of Virginia, 600 mountain people. I'm kin to 100 of them, right? And so I was going to go back there and hunt and fish and eat chocolate pie and fried chicken, watch Andy Griffith two hours a day. I knew what ministry was going to look like. And now God's saying, how about hanging out in the hood for the rest of your life? Ha! Huh. And here's the deal. God knew if he had just invited me to that, I'd have said No. I'd I'd ask for forgiveness, but I said, not a chance, brother. So he set me up. Listen, if you ask God, I was asking God, is there something more? He knew there was something more, but he knew I wasn't ready to say yes to it, so he set me up. You got to watch him. God tricky that way sometimes. So anyway, set me up. So now we got all these people sitting around looking at us going, will you help us? And so we had to decide what to do. So we went back and resigned our nice, comfortable position in the suburbs. My wife was pulling my little girls across the street, the two oldest ones, in a little red wagon in the morning to school and back home in the evening. It was great. Life was good. But we had to resign, and we took pastor to this little church, and I started City of Refuge because I knew what we were going to do wasn't going to look like regular church. So we got downtown. We're very intentional. We're going to feed people who are hungry. We're going to close people who don't have clothes. We're going to help little children who don't know how to read and write, learn how to read and write. We're going to be very intentional. We're going to be practical with those things. We're not going to start with preaching the gospel of the cross in the beginning. We're going to live out the gospel of the Messiah in the beginning so we can get them to the gospel of the cross. We're very practical, relational. Start to find out their names and their mama's name and their sister's name and their auntie's name and their grandmother's name. We're just going to be very practical and relational so that we can get to the eternal. We were past this little church, started City Refuge, and a couple months in, Rhonda called me one morning, and she was weeping. She said, baby, if we're going to impact the city, we got to go live in the city. I said, you got to be kidding me, woman. I hate when that woman listens to God. So anyway, she goes, if we're going to impact the city, we got to go live in the city. She said, if we want people in crisis to trust us, we have to live among them and show them we trust them. So we looked around as lights of the store. We looked around. We couldn't find anything we could afford. We were missionaries at the time. We're like, what are we going to do? And I said to Rhonda, well, the third floor of this 65-year-old church building is empty. And she goes, let's move in. 
So we moved in this old church building downtown Atlanta. You know when they build churches, they don't put bathtubs in them, Pastor. It's the weirdest thing to me. First six months, my little girls took a bath in a number two wash tub. We filled up with a green water hose. First night we lived there, crack addict tried to steal the vehicle. He was a high, hot water windshield wiper motor. I came out the next morning, the vehicle still had a wiper going. I said, well, this is going to be a hoot right here. Baptismal, first baptismal service we had. Baptistry was right back here. You had to crawl under the stage to turn on the water. I crawled under the stage, turned on the water. There's a homeless dude living under the stage in the sanctuary, full bedroll, hot plate, radio wired up. I'm like, what in the world? Scoot over, buddy. I got to turn on the water. Turn on the water. We lived there for six years, broken into 34 times, three vehicles stolen. Guns, knives, fist fights. I've been in Superior Court with guys that tried to kill me. And it was just more fun we'd ever had in church before. <laughs> we didn't have anybody fussing about the color of the carpet. The music's too loud. Contemporary versus traditional. We're like, you didn't get shot. I didn't get shot. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Loving on people, caring for people, practical expressions of the love of Jesus Christ. Ron and I, our fifth daughter's born while we lived there. We started bringing in little girls, fostering little girls whose moms were going to rehab or to jail to solve their issues. When mom would get out, she didn't have anywhere to go. She'd come live with us. I woke up one morning, I started counting between my wife, our five girls, the single moms and their little girls. I was living with 23 women. I said, dear Lord, I got to get out of here in a hurry. Little 20,000 square foot building. I call a real estate buddy. I said, go over deeper in the hood and find me a building. So the bluff in Atlanta, we're on your news every night, whether you know it or not, 30314, highest crime rate in the state of Georgia, highest homeless population, highest number of HIV positive cases, more men and women in jail from our zip code, any zip code in the state, 60% of all the murders that occur in metro Atlanta occur in our neighborhood. I said, that's where we want to be. Real estate buddy came back. He said, we found eight acres of land, five acres under roof, an eight-foot fence with razor wire and an armed guard at the gate. I said, well, our dreams have come true. Go find out how much they want for that. He came back. He said, they'll take a million six hundred thousand. And my counteroffer was, well, we don't have any money. And, uh, <laughs> and they turned me down for six months, and then they donated eight acres of land, five acres under roof in the middle of the hood. in the middle of the darkest part of our state and one of the darkest places in the United States statistically, God had an eight-acre oasis waiting for us. It was the well of water where everybody that was broken, weary, and worn out could run and get their help. The city of refuge comes from the Old Testament. Some of you know this. There's three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan, three on the west side of the Jordan. When people had shed blood and were running for their life, they could run to the city of refuge. And if they could get there before the avenger of blood caught them and killed them, they'd present their case to the high priest. And if the high priest had found they were innocent or it was manslaughter or self-defense, they could live inside the city for the rest of their life and their food, their clothing, their vocation was taken care of. And the avenger of blood could walk outside the city gates, but he couldn't come inside. And when the high priest died, all sins were absolved and everybody was free to leave and the avenger of blood could no longer take their life. Everybody lived within 30 miles or a half day's journey and they were running to the city of refuge. Downtown Atlanta, Georgia, there's a city of refuge where people are running for their life. They've been abused, beat up, they're broken, they're weary, they're addicted, they're in poverty. They're running for their life and the avenger of blood is trying to kill them. But if they get inside our gates, we're going to feed them and clothe them and house them and take care of all their practical needs and show them the love of Jesus Christ. 
And the coolest thing we get to do is tell them that the high priest has died once and for all and they are free to live their destiny from now on. Hallelujah. And so now in the middle of that eight acres of land this morning on our campus, we got up front in Eden Village, our our housing center for women that are homeless with their children, 40 mothers with their kids woke up. About 100 people woke up on our campus where they live for six months at a time. Medical, mental health, dental, vision, parenting classes, financial literacy, vocational placement, vocational training, 100% full, 100% of the time. Last year we had 5,050 requests for housing and we could say yes 349 times. Full daycare from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. from six weeks of age to five years of age so the kids are cared for while mom's getting better. Walk down the hallway, you run into our private Christian school for middle school and high school students that in 14 years has had 100% college acceptance rates from all of our graduates on school where they're loved with the love of Jesus Christ and taught the excellence of academics along the way. Just across the hallway from that's our 10,000 square foot medical clinic with six medical exam rooms, two dental units, vision component, mental health component, OBGYN, pediatrics, nine full-time medical staff, 750 patient visits a month. Walk on down the hallway a little bit more and you'll see House of Cherith. Pastor John talked about eight years ago, I got a phone call one morning. Buddy of mine in Tennessee said a young lady's just been rescued from trafficking in Washington State. We're flying her across country. Can you take her? I said, well, Jerry, we don't have a survivor program. He said, we just need you to hide her away. They're going to find her and they'll kill her. And so we hid her away for 30 or 40 days. And after about 40 days, she asked to see me. And I walked into her room with a couple staff. And she looked at me and she goes, you have to take me to the courthouse and wipe away the fact I ever existed. She said, they'll find me and they'll kill me. We have to change my name, my social security number, my birth certificate. I said, darling, we'll do that, but tell me the story. She did, crazy story. I had to get the FBI involved. Went home and told my wife that night, we're not just going to pray about this or give somebody else money. We're going to start our own program. So we raised the money, built a 12-bedroom, six-bath house where we were going to take those that had been rescued from sex trafficking, exploitation, or abuse and molestation and move them in in a triage environment, 30 to 60 days, and then we move them to long-term programs. Well, what happened was we filled up the safe house immediately, and then we found out there are only 700 beds in the country that serve those with the level of trauma we were experiencing. And so because they only have 700 beds and most of those are government funded and they have to meet outcome-based measurements, they won't take the most difficult to serve. Those with the highest level of addiction or mental health challenge or physical challenge or criminal background. So we said, we'll build another house. So we built a second house, 12 bedroom. And we filled it up. So we built a 14 bedroom house. Then we built another three bedroom house. And then we opened in Tallapoose. And then we opened in Bremen. Last week, we opened in Dallas, Texas. Now, May the 10th, we will cut ribbon on our campus for a 13 bedroom survivor home for juvenile survivors of sex trafficking exploitation. 13 new bedrooms. We're now a drop-off location for the Atlanta Police Department for the GBI, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security. We'll have 85 beds by the middle of this year, which make us the largest provider of trauma-informed care beds for survivors in the country. That's because 25 years ago, one little lady walked down the aisle and said, can you help me? And we didn't know what it meant. We'd never been in a space before, but we looked at her and we said, Yes. See, sometimes you say yes and you figure it out after the fact. 
Sometimes you say yes when you don't have the resources. Sometimes you say yes when you don't have the skill. Sometimes you say yes when you don't know what the battle's going to look like. Sometimes you say yes just because God wants you to say yes, and then he will take care of the rest of the journey for you. In eight years, over 800 women have lived on our campus and received the love of Jesus Christ and the trauma-informed care they need because we said yes one time 25 years ago. So you see, this morning, I didn't come by Bremen, Georgia to ask you to build a city of refuge. I didn't come by here to ask you to change 800 lives or 25,000 lives that have come through city of refuge. I didn't ask you to expand around the country. We now have nine locations. We have four in Georgia, three in Virginia, Chicago, and Baltimore. We're opening in Dallas and New Orleans and Nashville and, and, uh, and Chicago this year. It's crazy what God is doing right now. It's unbelievable. I didn't ask you to do any of that. All I asked you to think about this morning is, is there one Caroline in your life that you can say yes to? Is there one individual that you know is broken, weary, beat up, does not think anybody loves them, does not think anybody cares about them, they're trapped in their addiction or their mental health challenges or their poverty and they can't see a way out? Is there one you can say yes to? Is there somebody's will that you will be intentional to go and sit at until they show up? And when they show up, will you be practical about what they need? And will you develop a relationship that goes beyond, hello, how are you? And will you do those three things, intentional, practical, relational, over and over and over until you have a chance to talk about the eternal? You see, because God's done these incredible things for us now, it's just, it's unbelievable what he's done for us. But at the end of the day, it's still always about the one individual life being transformed. The one individual life being changed. And so in our survivor program, about five years ago, we had a young lady show up. She was born into a satanic cult, and the way they funded their cult was by trafficking their daughters. And so they started trafficking her when she was five years old. And for the next 18 years, they moved around the country selling their daughters. When she was 23 years old, they were set up camp in Alabama. She stole a truck and got to Atlanta. She got to Atlanta and somebody in the street said, you can't live in these streets, baby. They'll kill you. You got to go to City of Refuge, House of Cherith, and see Pastor Bruce and Mama Rhonda. And somebody got her to City of Refuge and House of Cherith and she moved in and it was as bad a case as we've ever seen. She was angry. She was bitter. She was frustrated. She wouldn't talk to anybody. She wouldn't look at anybody, especially men. The first time she heard the train go by, a train runs right behind our campus. The first time the train blew the whistle, she ran out of the building down the street. My daughter Kelsey had to chase her down. They're lying on a sidewalk, colder, and she's weeping. Something has triggered her, and Kelsey finally gets her to talk about it. And she said, we moved around the country. We moved out every six weeks because my parents and the others in the cult didn't want the law enforcement to detect who we were. And so we moved often, and she said they would often set up camp near the train depot. And when the train would come through, they would take us and throw us in the boxcars and sell us to the hobos. And she said, when I heard the train, it brought it all back. And my office sits right in the center some of my friends here this morning, they know where my office, my office sits right in the center house of chair. My office sits right here. There's a 12-bedroom house here, 12-bedroom house here, 14-bedroom house across the hallway. Every day I get to see these beautiful princess warriors that have been beat up and wearied and worn down by the things of life. And, and I get to say good morning and hopefully smile and hopefully get a smile back. 
But with Savannah, I got no smiles back and I got no hello. For months, I would walk by and I'd say, good morning. She'd look at the floor. No response, no reaction. I was a man. I understood. All I knew to do was keep saying good morning. Sometimes you just keep doing the right thing the right way over and over and over. See, this is not always about results. It's always about obedience. It's not about whether or not they respond to me. It's about whether or not I do what the Holy Spirit has told me to do. And so I just kept saying good morning, Savannah, good morning. One Sunday morning, she'd probably been there a year. One Sunday morning, I walked up on stage at the end of worship to begin the ministry time, and I looked over. She was sitting to my right, and I noticed just a little bit of crack in her armor. You could see just a little bit of softening on her face. And I thought, all right, Lord. So the next week I walked by, I said, good morning, Savannah. Still got nothing. The next Sunday in the middle of worship, much like many of you did this morning, we're in the middle of worship. (laughs) And uninvited, she just stood up and walked down and knelt down over here and started wailing out loud. I mean, this is as bad a cry as I've ever heard. The pain and the agony. She cried and she cried and she cried and ladies went and ministered to her and then we continued with the service and the next morning, I walked out of my office and I walked down the hallway and she walked out of the house and as she was walking by, I said, good morning, Savannah, and her eyes were still on the floor, but she said, good morning, pastor. (laughs) That's all I needed right then was just three little words. Good morning, pastor. 12, 14 months in, I got good morning, Pastor. She started to connect just a little bit here and there, and about a month later, I walked outside. I walked down this long hallway in our building, walked out. Savannah was to the right. I didn't even know she was there. I'm walking down the steps, and she says to me, good morning, Pastor. How are you? Woo! It's a hallelujah kind of day. So a few months later, we started having a little dialogue here and there, conversation. Still struggle, a little dialogue. I got a buddy who owns a Christian dude ranch in Estes Park, Colorado. We take the women from House of Cherith out end of September, 1st of October to hang out, ride horses and hike. And it's just an amazing, amazing time. You try to take 40 women that have been through crisis through TSA at the airport. You should video that. I'm going to promise you that right now. Even before we go, one of the fun things is we give them all a couple hundred, two, three hundred dollars each and take them to Horsetown, let them buy boots and jeans and Western wear, and that's a hoot, man. We have to call ahead now because they'll tear the store down. But anyway, get them out there and they have this incredible view of God's creation and just this wonderful time of worship and therapy and counseling. So we were there, Savannah was part of the group, and so they were coming home on Friday, so on Thursday I jumped on a plane and flew to Denver and rented a car and drove up to Estes Park, and I went to the local flower shop and bought several dozen roses, went to the candy shop, bought a bunch of candy. I flew a couple in, friends of mine from California, set up in the, in the dining hall, I told the ranch people, I said, bring the ladies in one at a time. Lauren and Rochelle are going to be playing keyboards and singing. I'm going to stand inside the door, and as they come in, I'm just going to hand them some flowers and candy, kiss them on the cheek, and say, I love you. Just a little expression of God's love. And I was a little nervous because not all of them were yet at the place of being healed where they'd received that I was afraid of, and I was really worried about Savannah. 
And so they start coming in one at a time. They open the door, the music's playing. I hand them flowers, I hand them candy, I kiss them on the cheek, I go, I love you. And they would go, I love you, Pastor. And a cowboy would escort them off to the table. It's cool. I kept wondering about Savannah. I thought she might, I didn't know how she's going to react. So she's about two-thirds of the way through, probably number 30, whatever. The door opens. I'm standing there. I'm right inside the door. I got candy and flowers. And, and I just look at her and I go, I love you. <laughs> and she ran and jumped in my arms, wrapped her arms around my neck, legs around me, kissing me on the feet, going, I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm like, somebody get this woman off of me. Cowboys came, peeled her off, set her down. We had dinner. We went over to worship time afterwards. We're sitting over and we're singing and they're playing and, and they're sharing. And, and, and Savannah goes, I, I, need to, I need to share something. And she goes, you know, I got here a couple years ago and y'all started talking to me about the heavenly father. And she said, the only father I know abused me my whole life. And you start telling me about love and the only love I knew is what somebody paid to show me love. She goes, you kept telling me I'm important and I'm wonderfully made and how much God loves me and created me and knew me in my mother's womb. She goes, tell me all this stuff and I keep trying to buy it and believe it, but I keep remembering the 23 years of my life. And she said, so an hour, about an hour before dinner tonight, she said, I went out and sat beside that great big tree by the dining hall over there. And she said, I just looked up and I said, okay, God, they keep telling me that you're real and they keep telling me that you love me. And I keep wanting to believe it, but it's really hard. She says, so I'm going to make a deal with you. She said, if you're real and you love me, she said, I want a man to look at me who wants nothing from me and I want him to, and I want him to say, I love you. She said, and if you don't mind, I'd like that man to remind me of Pastor Bruce. And she said, an hour later, I opened the door. And it wasn't a man that reminded me of Pastor Bruce. It was Pastor Bruce looking at me, saying, I love you. And I know he won't nothing from me. She said, and now I know there is a God, and I know he loves me. And she came back and graduated our program and went to Bible college, got married, and got a little girl, and we gave her a car. And she comes by every now and then and stops in our auto shop, and gets the oil changed, and the tires rotated and balanced. And while they're working on her car, she walks down that hallway by House of Cherith where she used to live. She comes and taps on my door, and I look up, and she goes, morning, Pastor, and I go, hey, Savannah. And she'll go, can I have just one more of those daddy hugs today? And I'll give her one more. She just needed us to be intentional. She just needed to be able to walk on our campus and get a room that was her own, beautifully decorated, and walk down the hallway to our boutique and pick out six brand new outfits and 
purses and jewelry and shoes. Walk across the hallway to our top of the line salon where she got her hair colored and styled. Sit with case managers who care about her. Sit in a worship experience where nothing was expected of her. It was just created for her. She just needed to be looked in the eyes and hear her name called. She just needed to know that her past did not define her. See, when Jesus sat with the woman at the well, everybody else thought that she was an adulteress. She'd been married five times. She must fool around a lot. Now she's living with a man. She's guilty of not only adultery, but fornication. What about this? What about this? What about this? You see, the greatest gift a woman could give a man in the day and age in which the Samaritan woman lived was a child, especially a male child. What if there's a chance that she wasn't an adulteress? What if there's a chance she wasn't a fornicator? What if there's a chance she was just barren and couldn't have children and five men had put her away because she couldn't give them what they wanted? And what if the man she was living with now wasn't her lover? What what if he had just taken her in to care for because nobody else would? What if she wasn't a bad person? What if she had just had bad things happen in her life? Changes the story a little bit, doesn't it? And what about the idea of you and I starting to look at people a little bit different? Stopping, what if we stopped declaring that they're alcoholics or addicts or prostitutes or criminals? What if we started declaring, that's my brother and that's my sister whose life has been broken? And it's my job to be intentional and practical and relational so I can reintroduce them to our Father. Who's your Savannah? Who are you going to kiss on the cheek and tell you love today? Who are you going to sit down at the well and share a drink of water with? They're waiting. You and I get to say yes or no when they walk down the aisle of our life. Stand with me, please. God's calling every one of us not to be Bruce Deal, but to be you and to be obedient to the work that he's called you to and prepared you for. And that work starts today. If if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, if you have a heart that's willing to say yes, 
So they're going to sing. Bruce isn't calling. John's sure not calling. Jesus is calling. Will you say yes? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've called us to this time and to this place and given us this opportunity. The fact that we have breath in our lungs and strength in our bodies proves that you're not done with us and there's still more to be done. Lord, would you open our eyes and help us to see the kingdom work that's all around us and help us, Lord, to be intentional and to hear when you call and to be obedient to what you say. You've already provided the power. And we thank you in Jesus' name. We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.